Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin. Malenkov. Hey, that works. Two Russian leaders in a row, Katie. Too, too many. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world. The ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie, you ready to start some fires? I am. Uh, I'm starting a fire today of, of knowledge with some tinder provided by a guest who knows much more about this topic. We'll get to her in a minute. But first of all, the topic, Malenkov. Who the hell is that? What is that? Turns out it's the leader who kind of popped in right after Stalin popped his clogs. And officially, he was only large and in charge in the Soviet Union for a total of nine days. I mean, that's the same length as Cher and Greg Allman were married. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess in Hollywood terms, pretty good. Uh, he did linger on for a few more years after that. But I didn't even know anything about him until you tipped me off to that movie. The Death of Stalin, Armando Iannucci. So this movie I watched once, Katie, and it has sort of shaped my perception of everything that happened in this period, which is both good and bad. It's good because it's an amazing film, but it turns out it's not entirely accurate. It's not an actual historical document. It turns out it's a film. Uh, turns out it's just complete mucky ER, just storytelling <laughs> silliness. Um, I did watch it as well. And it gave me a flavor to savor. But we have to get into the nitty-gritty of the facts and figures. And that is why today we have wheeled in Dr. Natalia Chernyshova. She's the senior lecturer at the University of Winchester's Department of History. And she also specializes in Belarus and the late Soviet post-Stalin era, which is exactly what we need you to tell us about. Welcome, Natalia. Well, thank you very much. And it's lovely to be here. Um, yes, Malenkov is this... Uh, interesting person who seems very uninteresting at all. Um, and then um, all of a sudden, he is uh, number one. Um, he stays number one, in both in party and in the state for uh, a few days. And, and then he gallantly steps aside um, to let the others take some of the charge, although he doesn't relinquish all of his power. Yeah, so he was just thrust into the spotlight, as far as I could tell, when Stalin suddenly died. What Can you give us a sense of the snake pit of skullduggery that was happening as he emerged as the party head? Sure. We often think of Stalin as being the sole dictator, one man in charge of the largest country in the world. But actually, Stalin did not work alone. He worked with a team. And his team, the men, and they were all men, um, who were closest to him, they were no nobodies. They were very powerful men in their own right. Each of them had a, a, an important brief uh, to look after. Um, 
And Stalin consulted them and discussed things with them, however strange it might seem to us. Um, sometimes this was in, in the office in, in the Kremlin, but very often it was over drunken parties uh, or over a movie. Stalin loved uh, watching films. So the membership of this group changed over time. Um, but by the time Stalin dies, this is a, a, a big four group. Um, Malenkov is one of them. There's also Beria, the chief of the secret police, a very powerful man. Um, then there is um, uh, uh, Bulganin and uh, finally... Khrushchev. Khrushchev. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's always the a, 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 a little guy. Yeah, <laughs> not very important in the large scheme of things. That's why I forgot. Thank you. <laughs> and Khrushchev. Can you give us an idea, Natalia, of what this man looks like? Because he is played in the film Death of Stalin by Jeffrey Tambor, who looks both incredibly pale and shifty. And Katie's got like, I don't know if it's a toupee or he's had his hair dyed, but he's. He's not an impressive man, is no, he? No, he's, he's kind of creepy looking. He has purple lips. It's weird. Wears a weird white suit as well. Yeah, yeah. So we're just trying to get a sense of what's the real deal with this guy. Well, right. I think uh, in that film, um, yet again, we, we don't quite get the real Malenkov because Malenkov was bigger. He was really? actually quite fat. At some point, Stalin began to tease him about losing his human appearance, you know, and saying you need to lose some weight. I wouldn't you want to be teased to by Stalin. No, no. That's the start of no, the end, isn't it? No. Uh, meanwhile, plying Malenkov with food and wine and, and harder liquor. Um, so... So Malenkov um, uh, kind of goes around looking a little bit like a woman. He has very broad hips. He's got very sort of feminine face. And uh, one of his uh, colleagues who wasn't very fond of him calls him Malania, which is a, a female name like Mary or Megan. Um, and and tease, they all tease him about his uh, uh, being overweight. He was always a plump guy. But as someone said that, you know, un- underneath those rolls of fat, there was a, a lean and hungry man waiting to get out. One of the, I thought that description was quite good. Um, he was happily married um, mm. to a, a, a very strong-minded woman who at some point after the war um, was billed as the most powerful woman in, in Moscow. Was she? she? She was in charge of a Moscow... Um, Energy Institute. She was the the, the rector or, or head of that, and um, they met on on a propaganda train during the so Civil romantic, War. Isn't it? <laughs> How romantic! Those are. They were, they lived together for more than half a century, had three kids, but were never married formally. That is, they, Why? they never mar- uh, registered their marriage. It was the thing the Bolsheviks did. They they kind of they, they were, you know, modern people. They they were above that bourgeois notion yes. of marriage. So uh, but they were, you know, very a, a very happy couple in the sense that they worked and, and they stayed together. And Malenkov clearly cherished he was being teased that he um you know enjoyed being led by Stalin, by Beria, by uh, Khrushchev and even by his wife. Uh-huh. So well, maybe that's what made him such a valuable team player because, you know, not everybody can be the big dog on campus. What was he like? We have a sense of what he looked like, but what was his kind of style of interaction, communication, how he spoke? Well, he was very well spoken. Someone said that he had the best Russian of them all. Um, and this is because he was quite well educated, actually, especially when compared to some others who, who like Stalin. Stalin wasn't very well educated. Is that right? Mm, not quite. No, Stalin had a good uh, a good run of a, of a, a Russian seminary. 
back in Georgia. Oh, okay. He was uh, even writing poetry in his young mm. days. Who knew? Stalin was a poet. He was a romantic. Um, they were not bad, the, those poems. Really? Um, but he abandoned them in, in uh, favor of revolutionary yes. struggle. <laughs> in, in favor of opening a couple of gulags, a chain of gulags. Yeah, eventually that's how his career panned out. Um, but Malenkov was was very um, uh, sort of fond of intellectual company as well. You know, his family uh, had you know dinners with people who were academics, professors, not least because of he, who his wife was in, in her work. Um, he was well read. Um, he insisted on giving good education to his children. He taught them himself and read them poetry. Even during the most difficult moments of his career, when he during the war, and he'd come home tired, but he'd still find time to read poetry to them. That's nice, isn't it, Katie? Yeah. When I've been reading about him, Katie, sometimes I get the sense that Malenkov is a mere pen pusher. He seems to be like a career um, bureaucrat. And then there's other instances that you read about, and you think, "Oh my God, this man is murdering scum." <laughs> so, what's the truth there, Natalia? That's an excellent question and a very difficult one to answer. Um, probably more of a bureaucrat than a psychopath. But the problem is that in the Stalin era, um, in the late 30s and, and beyond, that is uh, bad enough. It is enough to be uh, obedient, loyal, uh, no difficult questions asked bureaucrat to participate in a bloodbath. Um, he was highly efficient. This is how he got into Stalin's field of vision. He was working in the office of the Central Committee uh, and was very good at what he did um, and got increasingly promoted um, to, to more and more responsibility. Um, Molotov remembered him, another old comrade of Stalin who outlived him by some time. Uh, Molotov remembered him as uh, a telephone man, he said, um, someone who was very good at getting information, a good implementer, very efficient. But Malenkov's political strategy was that he kept quiet. Uh, he didn't say much. Uh, he didn't take initiative all that much. He listened uh, and took careful note of everything Stalin said. In fact, he turned. He would turn up to these parties in Stalin's um, at Stalin's dacha or in in his Kremlin apartments with a notepad, which said uh, the instructions of Comrade Stalin, and he would take important instructions of of. Stalin uh, down um, in, in his notepad. So he was always prepared. Um, and he was not personally ambitious. This was quite clear. Some, some of his colleagues thought he was weak. Um, and that was also helpful. Being non-threatening was a good thing. It was a good survival strategy. Natalia, we got a belly full of Stalin last week from our guest, Alex Halberstadt, whose grandfather worked for Stalin as a bodyguard, uh, lived to tell the tale, most unusual. But I was wondering if you could elaborate on this whole party scene that Stalin had. Like, what went down at the dacha? Well, they were an ordeal for the team members. Uh, it might sound so innocent to us, you know, go watch a film with Stalin and, and then maybe have a nice dinner. Uh, not quite. Um, I'd be panicking already, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, first of all, they, they all of these things took place very late at night, if not to say early in the morning. So they were exhausting after a day's work, sometimes at weekends. And then the, the families would kind of sign and think, oh, this is our one chance to see our, our husbands and fathers. And, and, and that's not going to happen. Um, but increasingly, those parties became more, more and more debauched. Um, and partly 
What, just like hedonistic drinking and eating yeah, and th- this, this was call an, girls? No, no, no call no. girls. Right. Although Stalin... Cool boys? <laughs> no, no. Stalin was very prudish. Um, he hated, for example, uh, any hint of nudity on in film, oh. uh, on screen. He got, once he uh, saw a, a foreign film that the Minister of Cinema showed, chose for him. <laughs> secret copy. A uh, secret copy. And he, uh, and there was a, a, a naked or semi-naked woman on screen and Stalin walked out and shouted at, at the minister saying, well, are you trying to turn us into a brothel? Wow. Uh, and the minister, of course, you know, packed his bag and prepared to go. Um, <laughs> but, the end of but, but it was all right. It turned out to be all right. Um, but Stalin absolutely tolerated zero um, you know hint of sexuality on screen uh, but he did make his guests dance um, and his daughter um, so Khrushchev remembers being you know forced to dance this Ukrainian dance Kopak which is darn difficult to do because you squat and throw your legs out from oh yeah it's like the classic like it's the classic thing where you kind of like keep bouncing up and down and kicking out either leg hard on the quads tom very it's like a sort of squatting <gasps> can can isn't it squatting can can there you go <laughs> but you can just picture khrushchev who was getting round and round himself uh, <laughs> being forced to do this he did not enjoy it um he also once told um i think molotov to dance with one of the polish visitors a, a polish dignitary from the communist party um, and and they did duly, uh, and they saw it as a good opportunity actually to exchange a few quiet words that they preferred not to be overheard. Ah, so, so so in between the, the huffing and the puffing and the and the forced squatting, it was a waltz. Bouncing. <laughs> oh, it was a waltz. It was a waltz. <laughs> this is so weird. So all these men are waltzing with each other. Is it a sense? Is he trying to humiliate them as well, or is he just strictly very entertained by? Old school dancing. <laughs> just a strictly fan. S- strictly, yeah. strictly he, Stalin. Um, <laughs> a little bit of both, because to him, to humiliate others would be highly entertaining. Uh, so humiliation served two purposes. Um, one is to amuse Stalin in his old age, um, but the other is to keep them on their toes and not to let anyone think that they were beyond approach or safe with Stalin. Um, but there was another reason for these very uh, excessive drunken parties. Um, Stalin encouraged them to drink as much as, as they could take and, and often more than they could take. You know, a lot of them would end up in the bathroom or being carried by their bodyguards home. Um, but the reason for that was Stalin hoped, apparently, that when drunk, they would blurt out something that they wouldn't otherwise. They they would be too cautious to guard it when they're sober. But when they're drunk, they would be themselves. So again, his sort of anxiety, his fear of enemies, his fear of being betrayed is always there, always in the background. And his party is a part of that. It seems to me, Katie, that in that mad struggle when Stalin dies, that mad struggle to take over, you've got all these massive characters. And if there was sort of bookmakers odds at that point, people mm-hmm. are, are whacking down a fair amount on Khrushchev and people like that. And then Malenkov or is... Beria as well. Beria, dirty Beria. Yeah. And it's almost like Malenkov is the, the sort of the horse that no one <clears> even looks at who just coasts up. And then everyone's like, oh, my God, it's Malenkov. Yeah, he is a little bit of a dark horse. Um, I, that's the part that I don't quite understand because you kind of assume that uh, these testosterone-fueled, uh, perhaps desperation-fueled, uh, egotistical would-be dictators are going to be muscling to the fore. And how is it that Malenkov ends up amongst this cohort of sharks being in charge? Th- there are two things at play here, I think. 
One is Malinkov is not a complete nobody. He might seem so to us from the perspective of many, many years since, and we know how things played out. Um, but at the time, um, since about late 40s, early 50s, I would say, he was increasingly being seen um, as potential successor to Stalin. Uh, and especially when Molotov and Mikoyan fall out of favor with a dictator, he becomes number one. Stalin gets old, um, you know, in the last few years before he dies, and he uh, gets too old, for example, to chair the Council of Ministers, which is the government uh, of the Soviet Union. Malenkov takes over. He passes the baton to Malenkov. And this wasn't exactly a fun job because there was one time when uh, Malenkov was chairing the meeting, a meeting of um, the Council of Ministers, and Stalin suddenly began to talk about how he's old and tired and he should probably retire. Mm. And Malenkov just nearly died in his chair. You know, what do I say? How do I take it from here? Fortunately for Malenkov, the whole room exploded in shouts, no, you can't retire. What will we do now? And so Malenkov <laughs> could breathe again. Yes. Um, but those were scary moments. But he is becoming increasingly the first among equals. But the second point that is really important to understand about these few years after Stalin's death is that um, the team have a, uh, bec- the team are remarkable at um, sticking to this principle of collective leadership after Stalin's death. They're very successful at it. And you'd think they'd be jostling for power and uh, um, uh, hunger for one person to, to rise out of their midst. But actually... Um, the last years of Stalin's life conditioned them to work as a team much better than all the previous decades because Stalin was starting to pick them out um, uh, for elimination and they felt it until they closed in their ranks. For example, when Mikoyan and Molotov fell out of favor with Stalin, um, Stalin didn't want to see them. He um, stopped inviting them to his parties and Molotov and Mikoyan were very disturbed by this. But the team... so. Beria, Khrushchev, Malenkov, they all decided to help them out and tip them when Stalin would have a gathering and they would turn up uninvited. Mm. And Stalin got really mad and started shouting at the rest of the team, stop telling them where I am. And then he had a birthday party. Mikoyan and Molotov are not invited. After a lot of consultation, the others tell them, just turn up. They turn up, uninvited at Stalin's party. Stalin behaves quite civilly. He ushers them in. He welcomes everyone. He's in good mood. When the party is over, he holds the other guys through the coals and says, no more. Enough is enough. Don't tell them where I am. I don't want to see them. They're not my comrades. (laughs) And this was an act of defiance. But they probably did it. Most likely they did it because they felt we need to close ranks, safety in numbers. We have to work as a team. And that spirit carries after Stalin's death because they are terrified of what will happen when Stalin dies. Will there be panic? Will there be anarchy? They're so obsessed with having this, you know, collective team uh, spirit communicated to the others that then when they all arrive in their cars um, to a public event or or, or a gathering, they time the opening of the car doors so that they would all come out at once and nobody can perceive one as being the main person, the most important thing. Partly this is self-preservation. Uh, Partly this is the political culture uh, from which they came out. Party takes precedence. Even Stalin never said he was above party, the party. Um, There are two exceptions, of course. One is Beria, 
and the other is Khrushchev. Beria is quickly got rid of. Um, Khrushchev plays the collective leadership role for a bit, but Malenkov certainly is happy and contented to play it along for quite some time. Do you think there's an element of them just feeling like, phew, at least we're not going to be, you know, have a knife in the back, you know, shot in the back of the head late at night? Like, he's just quite happy to do whatever it takes to just keep the whole apparatus going. Is that the idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a huge sense of relief. Um, Molotov and Mikoyan are, are very, they're mm. very sad that Stalin is dead. They all cry, except perhaps Beria. Um, Beria never cries. Beria never cries. But is, are they really sad? I mean, what are they? What are those tears about? I mean, is it gratitude? It's, it's a mixture of feelings. People are complex, and and these yeah. people are certainly very complex. Um, Stalin had been there for them. He had been a loyal patron mm. uh, for most of their times. Um, and they find it very difficult to imagine life without Stalin. So it's just like a codependent relationship where they're yes. they're kind of like locked into the devil they know, Stockholm syndrome. Yes, to to a great extent it is, and and it's not just that because they're afraid of him, but because they do admire him a great deal. They do think he was the greatest. They do think he was wonderful. Again, all perhaps except Beria, and soon enough Khrushchev comes to a different point of view too. Um, but. Um, but they're also very worried um, about a new Stalin, one of them becoming Stalin. And this is precisely one of the reasons why Beria is dispatched so quickly. Oh, because they think that he has the potential? He has down? the potential, but also he has the thirst. It's very obvious that he is losing no time uh, in becoming number one. And he takes all kinds of initiatives, policy initiatives, that basically he's treading on their toes as, as party man because he is just chief of security. But he begins to dismiss people, to appoint people, and this is always the prerogative of the party. So they get very worried about Beria. Um, and he's also becoming quite dismissive of them um, and, and mocks them. He's very sharp-witted. So um, Beria is a dangerous man. Besides, he's in charge of the security forces uh, right. and, and he has a file on all of them. Sometimes Stalin said he had a file on him. Smart guy. Wow. So what happens at his little interregnum where Malenkov is in charge? Why does it come to an end so quickly? You mean the nine days? Yeah. Uh, they just get together and redistribute the posts to to uh, prevent someone becoming too powerful. And to Malenkov, they say, look, you can't be head of the party and head of the state at the same time. And he's all right with that, is he? He's completely all right with that. Um, in very, fact, very it's... Very un-Stalin like that behavior. <laughs> <Very un-Stalin-like. laughs> You're going to take all your power away and just be oh, yeah, great, fantastic, <laughs> crack on. This is partly a plan hatched by Malenkov and Beria together. And uh, Malenkov... Um, it, it perhaps is not feeling too badly done because um, at that point in the Soviet Union, being in charge of the government is a more powerful position than being in charge of the party. And no one is appointed the general secretary of the party just yet. Uh, it's only a few months later that Khrushchev is made the first secretary of the party. And then he makes the party his stronghold and and, and, uh, turns it into a powerful position. But Khrushchev is nowhere near the leadership position. It's the main three guys, Malenkov, Beria and Molotov, who are seen as the most important people at Stalin's death. and, And they ride that way for quite some time. Katie, I need a couple of minutes to process all that stuff. Shall we have some quick adverts? Hey, how you doing? 
My name is Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy, and I just want to tell you about a new podcast called Death of a Film Star. It's from the makers of Death of a Rock Star, and it's really good. We've got episodes about Heath Ledger, Chadwick Boseman, Marilyn Monroe, and Robin Williams. You've seen them tell incredible stories, so now it's time for us to tell theirs. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. Honestly, do it now. It'll be worth it. I'm wondering about how Malenkov escaped being condemned for his senior role in The Purges. Uh, people must have thought he was a hypocrite for, for halting The Purges once Stalin was dead. Or did he just pin the blame on Beria? How did he finagle that? They all did. Beria was extremely convenient as a scapegoat. Uh, So Beria gets arrested very quickly in the summer. He's locked up. Uh, By the end of the year, 1953, he's dead. But uh, Beria becomes this really handy scapegoat. Of course, the chief of secret police was uh, was the one who did it all. And uh, for some time, he's even blamed as influencing Stalin negatively. Um, But... Another convenient scapegoat on which they come to pin all the crimes is, of course, the dead man himself, mm-hmm. Stalin. Um, this is the conventional idea, the conventional kind of uh, perception is that um, de-Stalinization begins in 1956 with Khrushchev's secret speech. In fact, it begins almost within days of Stalin's death um, at one important party meeting of the Central Committee, Malenkov, is the first one to use the phrase the cult of personality. Not in reference to Stalin. This We have to tread very carefully because people are still in mourning. Uh, but um, the penny is dropped. And then a few months later, in the summer, Malen- um, Malenkov again uses this phrase now in reference to Stalin, Stalin's cult of personality. Um, so gradually, the case is building against Stalin very carefully, very gingerly. Um, they also stop mentioning Stalin. The name of Stalin disappears from newspapers, from the press, from public commemorations. A year since Stalin's death, uh, the year's anniversary of Stalin's death goes unmarked. Shocking for the Soviet Union. Amazing. This is how quickly it moves. But eventually, even that is not enough. Um, They have to go bigger. They have to talk about uh, the scale of the terror or some of it. They never do reveal the full truth. Um, They have to talk about Stalin's crimes more forcibly. And Khrushchev comes round to the idea fairly quickly within a year or two that if he takes initiative on those revelations, he can benefit from it politically. And he does. It's all in timing and context, isn't it? And of course, just to recap, none of them were in a real hurry scurry to get the doctor in when Stalin was lying on the floor dying of a stroke. So, um, you know, they they seized an opportunity. That, yes, but they had some difficulties. <laughs> One difficulty was that they were afraid. They were so afraid to be wrong about the fact that Stalin was ill and dying um, that it took a long time for them to fully realize that um, actually we probably do need to call a doctor. Uh, And just to illustrate this, when uh, the bodyguards who discovered Stalin's body on the floor and lifted it and uh, and put him on the sofa um, 
when the body, when these bodyguards called the, the big four, so Bulganin, Malenkov, Khrushchev, and Beria, and they arrived at the dacha, they were afraid to come in. Uh, it was quiet in the in the study, Stalin's study. There were, there were no noises, and they were just terrified. What if we come in and we wake him up? And the bodyguard said he seems to be sleeping, but we're not sure. And so they decided that two of them will come in because four would make too much noise, but two would risk it and come in. And the lot fell on, guess what, Beria and Malenkov. Now, Beria marched right in, but Malenkov discovered that his shoes were squeaking. There were new shoes and they were (laughs) making noise. And so he took them off and held them under his arms. And with his shoes under his arms, he tiptoed into Stalin's office. And they thought he was just asleep. So they came out, berated the bodyguards, said, stop spreading panic, um, and left and went home. And then the bodyguard said, no, no, he's really, uh, he does need a doctor, we think. And they reconvened uh, next day. But there was another problem. There were no good doctors in Moscow because the doctor's plot meant that all the best doctors and Stalin's personal doctor included had been arrested. So who do we call? Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, conversation in the film uh, about do we get a good doctor, do we get a bad doctor? Um, in the film Death of Stalin is is actually, uh, you know, has a point. It, it does have a point. Um, they had a dilemma. I can't help but feel, Katie, that that has come back to bite Stalin on the arse there. The old uh, doctor's plot yeah. that he was, he was uh, drumming up this anti-Semitic hoo-ha against perceived enemies. And, uh, and there's no doctors left to treat him when he's, quote, sleeping. Unlucky. Yes. Un- there is oh. poetic justice in yeah. that, yes. A lot of poetic justice. I'm interested in uh, the demotion of Malenkov uh, that happened, I guess, gradually yet inexorably once he was supposedly in charge. Um, At one point, Khrushchev ends up reassigning Malenkov to manage a hydroelectric plant in Kazakhstan, which he ends up doing for the next three decades. Yikes, that's not a career opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) Malenkov kind of deserved that uh, because this was his punishment uh, for taking part in the anti-party coup. Uh, That was really not a coup against the party, but a coup against Khrushchev in 1957. So this was his revenge on Khrushchev. This was his punishment, yeah. So tell us about this coup. Well, the coup... um, was not just the handiwork of Malenkov alone, ever a team player, uh, but it was the entire presidium. In fact, the bitter truth for Khrushchev was that the entire presidium uh, of the Communist Party, and this was the new name for Politburo, um, was against the majority of the presidium was against him. Um, and they wanted, uh, they were not sure what they wanted to do with Khrushchev, um, but they summoned Khrushchev to tell him off and to say that this cannot go on. And what they meant was that Khrushchev was increasingly um, a loose cannon to the collective membership leadership. He was acting too much on his own initiative. Um, uh, he was uh, embarrassing them also in public. He was being very crass, uh, sometimes offensive. Um, while Malenkov was still formally head of state uh, and the premier, uh, Khrushchev was making, uh, you know, foreign visits and and giving speeches to uh, uh, foreigners and and and, and to uh, sometimes domestic audiences as if he was the boss, um, and they didn't like this one bit, uh, and they confronted him, uh, and they said this has to stop. 
but Khrushchev outwitted them. Uh, this was a brilliant stroke of political maneuvering. Uh, he basically demanded that the decision uh, on his fate is made by the Central Committee, which is a larger body of the political elite uh, of the Communist Party. And uh, the Presidium members couldn't argue their way out of it, and they agreed. Uh, and he was helped here by Mikoyan, who helped stall the proceedings because he wasn't sure that he wanted to, you know, Khrushchev to pay. So he stalled a little bit. And in that time, Khrushchev, together with his comrade Zhukov, um, gathered all these party secretaries from the regions, from other national republics. They were flown in with military planes so that they could be at that meeting of the Central Committee. And they almost unanimously defended Khrushchev. And suddenly, the Presidium, Malenkov and his team are on defense. Suddenly, they're the ones being accused of going against the party, attacking Comrade Khrushchev and so on. And this is where Khrushchev um, yells at Malenkov, you have blood on your hands uh, because of the Leningrad affair and so on. So there's this really heated sort of debate um, where they implicate each other in Stalin's crimes. But Khrushchev wins um, and they get their punishment. So Molotov is dispatched to Mongolia as an ambassador. Um, uh, Kaganovich is also sent off to some uh, a faraway post and Malenkov gets this hydroelectric power plant, which is at least in his line of profession. You know, he's deployed according to his... I can imagine that dedication. being sort of put to him as he sort of slumped in despair. Listen, Georgi, at least this is your line of work. Yes. Could be in Mongolia. Chin and, up. <laughs> and also, Tom, it's in it's his uh, local hood. I mean, that's where he was from originally. Is that right? Uh, it's close. It's close to his local. It's, it's Kazakhstan rather mm-hmm. than Siberia. But um, but it's also a, a lot better than a bullet to the head, yeah, which is exactly. what he would have got under Stalin. Um, so it was a, a quiet and perhaps um, too quiet life for some. But Malenkov seemed to have adjusted rather well to it. Um, he, nobody recognized him in the street when he came back to Moscow, but did, he did come back to Moscow. Uh, and of course, he had the satisfaction uh, of watching Khrushchev being kicked out of his post. Um, and he had the satisfaction um, of outliving Khrushchev uh, by some years, too. And shortly after Khrushchev's death, uh, he was given a nice apartment in Moscow yeah. um, and where he lived with his life until um, 1988. What would you say, Natalia, that Malenkov's legacy is? Had he stayed in power, um, he probably would have taken more time to think things over than Khrushchev often did. He probably would have avoided some of his blunders. Uh, But perhaps he would have committed his own. Uh, It's hard to tell. Um, He would have been good as a counterweight to Khrushchev. Uh, One Russian historian at least seems to think so um, because they complemented each other. One was a man of action, the other was a more slower, more efficient, more careful bureaucrat and they could have worked together as a team quite well, Um, but they didn't. So, But perhaps when he was in in a significant position, Malenkov did um, exert this slight dumping effect uh, on things. And because he was not another barrier or another Khrushchev, perhaps that helped avoid uh, a much more difficult and much bloodier transition after Stalin's death. So perhaps we ought to be thankful for small mercies like that. Natalia, I was a little mystified as to why Malenkov pops up in the lyrics of uh, We Didn't Start the Fire, because I feel like, okay, obviously Stalin's in there. 
um, makes sense that Khrushchev's in there, but Malenkov, I'd never even heard of him before this song. Do you think that his place in the song is justified? Yes, I think so. Um, He's definitely a Stalin's man. Um, He also illustrates rather well some of the complexities of of Stalin's rule Um, and the important transition um, from Stalin's Soviet Union to to the post-Stalin Soviet Union. Um, What seems to us as a small period of no significance between Stalin's death and the rise of Khrushchev was in fact a very important period that could not be taken for granted at the time. And indeed, none of the leaders took it for granted. Um, And they they were mighty relieved and really elated when they realized that they managed to avoid that anarchy, that life could go on after Stalin and indeed the Soviet Union could go on after Stalin. And Malenkov played a huge role in that. Well, what about um, Billy's other options, though, out of this cast of clowns? Like, do you think that uh, there would have been somebody else more suited and more dramatic in the song, perhaps? I think it would have been nice to uh, have a bit of barrier uh, in there because uh, he's also a very extraordinary person, Um, uh, very complex, uh, very, very intelligent, um, but also... um, incredibly sinister. Um, You know, Billy uh, looks at it from uh, outside, right? Uh, So Barry isn't very visible to those who are looking at it from outside. In fact, to a lot of Soviet people, you know, Barry is not that prominent. I mean, he becomes quite prominent towards um, uh, the end of Stalin's life and afterwards. But Malenkov is the f- becomes the face of the Soviet Union. So he's, of course, uh, part of the song. Uh, but my goodness, yeah, it, it, it's it's great to have him because it also shows that Stalin wasn't alone uh, and that the story of Stalinism is a lot more complex than just one man uh, ruling all. Natalia, thank you so much for taking what had been, I think to me and Katie, just a little missing jigsaw piece between the the two big dogs of Stalin and Khrushchev <laughs> and turning it into a beautifully nuanced and fully realised portrait. Well, thank you very much. Katie, I have two questions for you after that amazing bit of chat from Natalia. My first question is you and I are at Stalin's Dasha and the vodka is flowing and the tunes are playing and Stalin looks at you and goes, dance. What are you doing? Oh, my gosh. Okay, my quads are primed. I am dropping into that squat, dropping that squat like it's hot. Uh, sidekicks, uh, a little, some pony leaps, uh, and some uh, no, nothing too tawdry or uh, you know, saucy, because I don't want Stalin to be embarrassed because you know he's a little bit of a prude. But I have to say that my show poodle skills would serve me handily, Tom. I think I would not be uh, purged anytime soon. What about you? I think I would try, because I'm not going to be able to do a traditional Georgian folk dance. I would probably end up doing a slightly muted big fish, little fish cardboard box move, because that's what I grew up with. (laughs) (laughs) And see how Stalin takes the rave culture. Okay. But, you know, the other thing that I'm thinking, Tom, is that you and I kind of look out for each other. Like, even when we do these podcasts, we kind of, like, check in and we make sure, you know, you're, I definitely feel like you have my best interests at heart. And... 
I need you by my side. So I think that we would... Team dancing. We Team dancing, but also we would kind of fit in with that idea of looking out for each other to make sure that, you know, where one goes, all goes. Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm getting a little bit loose-lipped on the vodka, yeah. you're just saying, Tom, just come over here for a second. You yeah. just whisper, watch it, Fordyce, yeah. for the chop. A hundred percent. Okay, Katie, brilliant. Now, fast forward, say, 10 years. Unfortunately, you and I have been involved in a coup. And you are offered the choice of becoming the ambassador to Mongolia or running a hydroelectric plant in rural Kazakhstan. Which option are you taking? Here's what I feel about my incipient ambassadorship. There's lots of clinking crystal tumblers filled with crushed ice and vodka. And I feel like that's a festive lifestyle that would suit me very well. So I would like that option, please. How about you? Yeah, the hydroelectric plant sounds a bit dull, doesn't it? You're not going to look forward to Monday mornings in the hydroelectric plant, are you? (laughs) Evening soirees in Mongolia, they're not going to be the best, but it's still an evening soiree. Yeah. And there's lots of ponies on the steps of Mongolia. So I think it'll be festive. And Katie, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, we have President of Egypt, Nasser. I know nothing about him. I'm ready to be informed and entertained. Tremendous. And in the interim, if people would like another podcast to listen to? Oh, uh, if you want another podcast to listen to, why don't you go and search for Unaccountable? It's all about police reform in America and trying to hold police accountable for their actions. It's hosted by Allo Black and Ben Cohen, and each episode tells the story of an American citizen whose rights have been violated by the police, along with celebrity guests who are also fighting to end something called qualified immunity. Why not be part of the change? Search Unaccountable and subscribe now. And in the meantime, Katie, people can follow us at Spread That Fire. Here's something else. We've got an email address, which is fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. What about if people listen to this and think either, hey, I know someone who'd be amazing on that lyric, or I would be amazing on that lyric. You know what? That's a really good idea. So people, get on the interwebs and have a look at the lyrics that are coming up and see if perhaps you know someone who's a little bit of a pro in that area. Because like Stalin, we can't do all this on our own. Oh, yeah. And don't forget to subscribe. Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast. And the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.